It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to this audio long read from Nature. In this episode, How Iceland Hammered Covid with Science. Written by Megan Scudelari and read by me, Nick Howe. Driving along Reykjavik's windswept roads on a cold March morning, Carrie Stephenson turned up the radio. The World Health Organization had just announced that an estimated 3.4% of people infected with SARS-CoV-2 would die. A shockingly high fatality rate, some 30 times larger than that for seasonal influenza. There was a problem with that estimate, however. It was based on reported cases of COVID-19, rather than all cases, including mild and asymptomatic infections. Stephenson recalls, I couldn't figure out how they could calculate it without knowing the spread of the virus. He is the founder and chief executive of Decogenetics, a human genomics company in Reykjavik. He became convinced that making sense of the epidemic and protecting the people of Iceland from it would require a sweeping scientific response. When Stephenson arrived at work, he phoned the leadership of Amgen, the US pharmaceutical company that owns Decode, and asked whether he could offer Decode's resources to track the spread of the virus, which had landed on Icelandic shores only six days earlier. The response I got from them was, for heaven's sake, do that, says Stephenson. Over the ensuing nine months, Decode and Iceland's Directorate of Health, the government agency that oversees healthcare services, worked hand in hand, sharing ideas, data, laboratory space and staff. The high-powered partnership, coupled with Iceland's diminutive size, has put the country in the enviable position of knowing practically every move the virus has made. The teams have tracked the health of every person who has tested positive for SARS-CoV-2, sequenced the genetic material of each viral isolate, and screened more than half of the island's 368,000 residents for infection. Late nights analysing the resulting data trove led to some of the earliest insights about how the coronavirus spreads through a population. The data showed, for example, that almost half of infected people are asymptomatic, that children are much less likely to become sick than adults, and that the most common symptoms of mild COVID-19 are muscle aches, headaches, and a cough, not fever. 
Ranulfa Paulson, Director of Internal Medicine Services at Landspitali, the National University Hospital of Iceland, says scientific activities have been a huge part of the entire process. Researchers at Decode and the hospital worked day in and day out to gather and interpret the data. Their achievements aren't merely academic. Iceland's science has been credited with preventing deaths. The country reports fewer than 7 per 100,000 people compared with around 80 per 100,000 in the United States and the United Kingdom. It has also managed to prevent outbreaks while keeping its borders open, welcoming tourists from 45 countries since mid-June. The partnership again kicked into high gear in September, when a second large wave of infections threatened the nation. COVID-19 is not the first pandemic to reach Iceland's shores. In October 1918, Two ships carrying pandemic influenza docked in Reykjavik's downtown harbour. Within six weeks, two-thirds of the capital city's inhabitants were infected. A century later, the Icelandic government was better prepared, enacting a national pandemic preparedness plan at the beginning of January, two months before COVID-19 arrived. Ranulfo Gudnason, chief epidemiologist at the Director of Health, says... We decided at the beginning we would use isolation, quarantine and contact tracing. As part of that plan, the microbiology laboratory at the university hospital began testing citizens in early February. On the 28th of February, a man returning from a skiing holiday in northeastern Italy tested positive for the virus. Within a week, the number of cases had climbed from 1 to 47, the opening notes of a coming crescendo. As healthcare workers began ordering hundreds of tests per day, one of the hospital's machines for isolating and purifying RNA broke from overuse. Carl Christensen, the university hospital's chief of microbiology, recalls, we were not able to cope with all the specimens coming in. By the 13th of March, Decode had begun screening the general public and was able to quickly take over much of the hospital's testing. The company repurposed a large phenotyping centre that had been used to study the genetics of Icelanders for more than two decades into a COVID-19 testing centre. It almost looked like these 24 years preceding COVID-19 had just been a training session, says Stephenson. We dove into this in full force. The company has the staff and machinery to sequence 4,000 whole human genomes per week as part of its regular research activities, says Stephenson. Throughout the spring, it would set that aside to devote its analytical and sequencing heft to the pandemic response. Decode's main activity has been COVID-19 screening, including open invitations to the general population. Today, any resident with even the mildest symptoms can sign up to be tested. Residents sign up online using the dedicated COVID software built by Decode programmers. At a testing centre, they show a barcode from their phone to automatically print a label for a swab sample. Once taken, the sample is sent to a laboratory at Decode's headquarters that is run jointly by the University Hospital and Decode and operates from 6am to 10pm. Results are always available within 24 hours, but are often ready in just 4-6. to Christensen says we now have the capacity for about 5,000 samples per day. As a whole, the collaborators have so far screened 55% of the country's population. 
If the test is negative, the person receives an all-clear text. If the test is positive, it triggers two chains of action, one at hospital and one at the lab. At the hospital, the individual is registered in a centralised database and enrolled in a telehealth monitoring service at a COVID outpatient clinic for a 14-day isolation period. They will receive frequent phone calls from a nurse or a physician who documents their medical and social history and runs through a standardised checklist of 19 symptoms. All the data are logged in a National Electronic Medical Record System. A team of clinical scientists at the hospital created the collection system in mid-March with science in mind. Paulson says, We decided to document the clinical findings in a structured way that will be useful for research purposes. In the lab, each sample is tested for the amount of virus it contains, which has been used as an indicator for contagiousness and severity of illness. And the full RNA genome of the virus is sequenced to determine the strain of the virus and track its origin. The same approach could work in other countries that have suitable resources, such as the United States, where all the methods Decode is currently using were developed, says Stephenson. In fact, early in the pandemic, many US labs pivoted to offer coronavirus testing, but were stymied by regulatory and administrative obstacles, which critics attribute to a lack of federal leadership. Stephenson says this was a wonderful opportunity for academia in the United States to show its worth, and it didn't. I was surprised. Researchers at DECODE, the University Hospital and the Director of Health began analysing the wealth of data in early March and quickly published several early results. Stephenson says, once we started to generate data, we couldn't resist the temptation to begin to try and pull something cohesive out of it. Ranulfa Paulson notes that Iceland's COVID-19 results are limited by the fact that cases are occurring in a small and genetically homogenous population compared with other countries. But in some cases, that small sample size is also a strength because it has led to detailed population-wide data. In early spring, most of the world's COVID-19 studies focused on individuals with moderate or severe disease. By testing the general population in Iceland, Decode was able to track the virus in people with mild or no symptoms. Of 9,199 people recruited for population screening between the 13th of March and the 4th of April, 13.3% tested positive for coronavirus. Of that infected group, 43% reported no symptoms at the time of testing. Jade Benjamin Chung, an epidemiologist at the University of California, Berkeley, has used the Iceland data to estimate rates of SARS-CoV-2 infection in the United States, and she said... This study was the first to provide high-quality evidence that COVID-19 infections are frequently asymptomatic. It was the only study we were aware of at the time that conducted population-based testing in a large sample. A smaller population study, carried out in an Italian town, came to similar results on asymptomatic infection months later. When a 78-year-old man died in the northern Italian town of Vaux, Italy's first COVID-19 death, the region's governor locked the town down and ordered that its 3,300 citizens be tested. 
After the initial round of government testing, Andrea Crisanti, head of microbiology at the University of Padua in Italy, and who's also on leave from Imperial College London, he asked the local government whether his team could run a second round of testing. He says, then we could measure the effect of the lockdown and the efficiency of contact tracing. The local government agreed. On the basis of the results of the two rounds of testing, the researchers found that the lockdown and isolation reduced transmission by 98%, and, in line with Iceland's results, that 43% of the infections across the two tests were asymptomatic. In addition to tracking asymptomatic infections, the researchers in Iceland concluded that children under 10 were about half as likely to test positive as people aged 10 and older. A finding confirmed in Crisanti's study of Vo, as well as studies in the United Kingdom and United States. Additionally, the DECODE team analysed the viral genetic material of every positive case, and used that fingerprint to track where each strain of the virus came from and how it spread. Most of the initial cases, the researchers found, were imported from popular skiing destinations, whereas later transmission occurred mainly locally, within families. That genetic tracing approach, called molecular epidemiology, was similarly applied in New Zealand, to good effect. In March, New Zealand's government implemented a stringent countrywide lockdown aimed at eliminating the virus. Michael Baker, a public health researcher at the University of Otago in Wellington, says... Essentially, the New Zealand population more or less stayed at home for seven weeks. After that, we emerged into a virus-free country. That's a feat for a country of 5 million people, more than 13 times larger than Iceland. Genetic analysis of the first New Zealand wave from March to May showed that the strict lockdown began working right away. The rate of transmission, the number of people infected by each person with the virus dropped from 7 to 0.2 in the first week in the largest cluster. Sequencing data also showed that an August outbreak in Auckland, the source of which remains unknown, was from a single lineage, reassuring public health authorities that there had been only one breach. Genomics has played a vital role in tracking the re-emergence of COVID-19 in New Zealand, says Gemma Jeegan, and microbiologist at Otago, who co-led the project with Joke Delict at the Institute of Environmental Science and Research in Peoria. This summer at the University Hospital, Renolfa Paulson's team used the clinical data to investigate the full spectrum of disease caused by SARS-CoV-2. The most common symptoms among the 1,797 people who tested positive between the 31st of January and the 30th of April were muscle aches, headache, and a non-productive cough. Not fever, a symptom listed in both the US Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization case definitions for COVID-19. When used to guide testing, those definitions are likely to miss some symptomatic people, says Paulson. Hopefully, others will come to a similar conclusion and that will result in changes in the criteria, he says. The results from Paulson's team led to direct medical intervention in Iceland. Individuals showing any sign of a common cold or aches are now encouraged to get tested. And the hospital categorises new patients into one of three stages according to their symptoms, which dictates their level of care. 
The most recent study from Iceland focused on a major COVID-19 question. How long does immunity to SARS-CoV-2 last? Decode's team found that anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibodies remained high in the blood of 91% of infected people for four months after diagnosis. Running counter to early results suggesting that antibodies decline quickly after infection. It is possible that the conflicting results represent two waves of antibodies. In an editorial accompanying the paper, Galit Alter at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, and Robert Cedar at US National Institutes of Health Vaccine Research Center in Bethesda, Maryland, suggest that a first wave is generated by short-lived plasma cells in response to acute infection, then a second wave, produced by longer-lived cells, bestows lasting immunity. And finally, Carrie Stephenson was able to pin down the elusive statistic that first intrigued him, the infection fatality ratio, or IFR, or the proportion of infected people who die from the disease. Since the beginning of the pandemic, IFR estimates have ranged from less than 0.1% to a whopping 25%, depending on the size of the study and the age of the population. A growing number of studies are converging at about 0.5 to 1%. In Iceland, where the medium age is 37, relatively young compared with other wealthy nations, and patients have access to good healthcare, Stephenson's team found it to be 0.3%. On the 15th of June, Iceland opened its borders to non-essential visitors from 31 European nations. A month later, on the 16th of July, the country also lifted restrictions on visitors from 12 more countries, including Canada, New Zealand and South Korea. The opening gave a boost to the struggling tourism industry, although numbers of visitors remained low, with about 75% to 80% fewer summer tourists than in 2019, according to the Icelandic Tourist Board. Then, on the 10th of August, a pair of tourists at Reykjavik Airport tested positive for SARS-CoV-2, ignored regulations, and went into town. That incursion led to a small bump of cases in August, centred on two pubs and a fitness centre visited by the tourists. Then, in mid-September, the number of infections increased abruptly, from 1 to 55 in a week. Thorova Goodnesson says this one clone of the virus was able to spread around and cause lurking infections all over, especially in Reykjavik, and all of a sudden, we saw this increase. It's evidence of how difficult the virus is to contain. By October, coronavirus was more widespread in the community than it had been in the first wave, peaking at a rate of 291 infections per 100,000 people over two weeks. On the 17th of October, the number of active infections finally began to decline, which researchers attribute to widespread testing, tracing and quarantine procedures, as well as fresh government restrictions and emphasis on mask wearing. Goodnesson says, hopefully we can start relaxing our restrictions soon. Despite the outbreak, the country continues to keep its borders open to tourists from some countries although entry requirements are now stricter. Travellers must either self-quarantine for 14 days after arrival or participate in two screening tests, one on arrival, followed by five days of quarantine, then a second test. 
This method has led to the discovery that 20% of people who ended up testing positive received a negative test in the first round, notes Goodnesson. That is a high number, but seems consistent with other analyses. The new requirement is likely to have caught many strains of the virus that would have otherwise entered the country. Unlike New Zealand, which closed its borders, elimination was never supported in Iceland, for fears that the country would go bankrupt without tourism. So it's possible that new cases will continue to arise, says Goodnesson. Furthermore, he and others think that the current outbreak might be in large part due to pandemic fatigue, as people disregard health precautions after months of being careful. Gunnarsson says, I think we're going to be dealing with the virus, trying to suppress it as much as possible until we get the vaccine. And research continues in any and every spare hour. Renolfo Powerson's team is planning to analyse the effect of viral loads on patient outcomes and viral transmission, and to use contact tracing data to tease out the risk factors for a super-spreading event. Powerson says, We've had households where almost everybody gets infected, then other places where people carry the infection and stay in the workplace and nobody gets infected. It's very difficult to understand. At Decode, Kerry Stephenson and his colleagues are investigating cellular immune responses and whether people with COVID-19 who are very sick produce antibodies directed against their own tissues. And together, the Decode and University Hospital teams are collaborating on the long-term effects of COVID and how genetics affect susceptibility and responses to the disease. Stephenson says, We've been committed for a long time to take everything we learn about human disease and publish it. There is no way in which we would not have utilised the opportunity. To read more of Nature's long-form journalism, head over to nature.com slash news. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.